Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. Today's mysterious event occurred in the year 1768, but what else happened that year? Well, on the 9th of January, Philip Astley stages the first modern circus, which includes acrobats on galloping horses, in London. On June the 14th, the largest mass meeting ever held in New England up to this time takes place at the Old South Church to support a petition demanding that the British remove a ship which has been hindering navigation in Boston Harbour. On August the 26th, James Cook departs from Plymouth aboard HMS Endeavour on his first voyage of discovery. On October the 1st, the British Army's 29th Infantry Regiment of foot soldiers, which will carry out the Boston Massacre on March the 5th, 1770, arrives in Boston Harbour along with three other regiments. The 700 foot soldiers march through the Massachusetts colony's capital as a show of force and begin their occupation. Within a year, there will be nearly 4,000 armed redcoats in the crowded seaport of 15,000 inhabitants. And on October the 15th, a powerful hurricane sweeps across Cuba during the Festival of Santa Teresa, killing hundreds of people. Spain's King Carlos III begins the precedent of ordering the colonial government to fund disaster relief, a task previously left to the Catholic Church. But our event happened at a cottage in Wester Shepton, near Broadtross, on the outskirts of Shepton Mallet, where there lived an old man by the name of Owen Parfit. He used to be a tailor, but in his end days he became a helpless cripple, unable to move without assistance. There were many tales about his wild and adventurous youth, having run away from home when he was very young and shipping himself off to America. He was often heard to let slip small snippets of information regarding his earlier years, saying that he'd been mixed up with some strange company out in the West. Eventually, though, he enlisted in His Majesty's Army and served most of his time in Africa, although there are some who questioned his discharge date and were suspicious that he may have been mixed up in the slave trade instead. 
Word of the Week. And this week, I have pleasure in giving you... Scurry Fudge. Scurry Fudge is the hasty tidying of a house between the time you see a neighbour and the time she knocks on your door. Owen Parfit returned home to settle down, bent and crippled with wounds and rheumatism, and unrecognisable by anyone but Mary, his sister, who was 15 years older than him. Together they set up house, and Owen once again got out the board and the big scissors, the chalk and the wax, which his sister had carefully kept, and announced to the town of Shepton Mallet that he was going to become a tailor once more. However, the cottage which the brother and sister had taken proved inconvenient in many ways, and so they moved into another property, near the high road, with the main street lying at one end of the garden. Here he used to sit in the evening when his work was done and talk with some of his old friends who would lean over the gate and tell him all the news. He would often be in the habit of travelling to Bristol, returning with quite a bit of money. This would continue until a stroke paralysed him, making it impossible for him to walk any distance. He was still a curiosity though, as it was said that men who looked like they were seafarers would often call at Parfit's cottage. As time went on, Parfit grew weaker, until he was unable to even leave his bed without assistance. Mary looked after him, and she was helped by a young woman called Susanna Snook, who lived about 50 yards away, and would help get Owen out of bed so that it could be made every day. On the evening of the 6th of June, 1768, Susanna had helped get Owen into a chair and downstairs, placing him in a lovely position in the garden, where he could enjoy the evening sunshine. Just to make sure that he didn't get a chill, she put a great coat around his shoulders, covering his dressing gown and nightclothes which he always wore. And after helping Mary make up the bed, she left the house as usual, exchanging a few words with Owen on her way out. When Mary came downstairs a short time later, she was surprised by how quiet it was. Owen? Are you there? But there was no answer. Owen! She repeated desperately in a louder voice, but there was still no response. When she went outside, she found the chair just as she and Susanna had left it, but with no trace of her brother, except for the great coat, which was lying on the back. Susanna had only been gone for 15 minutes, but when she returned, she found Mary crying bitterly and in a very upset and agitated state. Susanna immediately noticed Owen's chair was empty and the great coat was there. She said, Why, where's your brother? Lost. Lost. He's gone and I do not know what's become of him. Susanna then asked anxiously what had happened and Mary told how she came downstairs but couldn't hear her brother anywhere. So she called out for him. Owen! Owen! But there was no answer. Susanna started to take matters into her own hands, asking, Did you hear no noise? Then searching the property before running to the village and notifying the neighbours. She declared that Owen Parfit had been carried away 
by someone and they must come and help her search for him. The news ran through the area like wildfire that the old man had mysteriously disappeared and the neighbours promptly hurried out to help in the search. It was at this moment that the weather, which up until then had been fine and bright, suddenly darkened and a tremendous storm of thunder and lightning raged hell onto Shepton Manor. The heavy storm didn't stop the searchers, who were out looking in every ditch, road, wood and field within a radius of three to four miles. The pond was dragged, but there was still no sign of Owen. The search continued through the night and continued until after sunset the following day, but they still couldn't find Owen. Nobody could figure out what happened to him. His health was so bad that he needed help with the basic of activities, so he couldn't have just wandered off. And he was quite a heavy man, so abducting him would have caused some sort of commotion, alerting anyone nearby. There were no horses or vehicles seen in the area around the cottage, and Susanna was adamant that she was only gone 15 minutes. It was also haymaking season, so all the fields in the area were full of people either mowing the grass or making hay. If Owen had attempted to cross the field or had been carried, someone would have seen him. They continued searching for several days, and the whole county for miles around was scoured. Inquiries were also made in Bristol, but to no avail. A magisterial investigation was held, and the depositions from several witnesses were taken but nothing new was discovered to help unravel the mystery. In those days, people living in the countryside were deeply superstitious, and at one time, Shepton Mallet had enjoyed an evil reputation for witchcraft. More than one old lady had been executed for the practice. Sometime after Owen Parfitt's disappearance, a few of his neighbors recalled him talking about magicians necromancers, wizards and obi medicine men who had been in contact with him in Africa. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. Today sees us in the village of Thiel, a simple Saxon word meaning plank. It may have referred to a plank bridge over the river Kennet, or possibly to a plank-built hall where the local hundred court met. Thiel has been the centre of one of these ancient administrative units since before the Doomsday Survey of 1086. The village's history is a good example of how different modes of transport have achieved dominance in England over the last three centuries, from road to canal to railway and back to road again. 
Nearby is RAF Thiel, a former Second World War RAF training facility located on Sheffield Farm, just east of the Canal Swing Bridge. It was opened in 1944 and used for training by the number 26 Elementary Flying Training School, and later in the same year by number 128 Gliding School. The EFT used 24 de Havilland Tiger Moths, and there are two grass runways. The canal by the airfield was fortified with pillboxes, one of which is a listed building. In World War II, a pillbox was a small concrete dug-in guard post, normally equipped with holes through which you could fire weapons, and there are many still in existence along the Kennet and Avon Canal. Using the waterway as a barrier, should the Germans gain a foothold in southern England and try and move further up the country. Near Theor, the Thames Valley Police has a small museum at the White House at the Thames Valley Police Training Centre in Solhampstead. It includes displays on the history of Thames Valley Police and the five police forces that merged to form it, Berkshire, Buckinghamshire, Oxford City, Oxfordshire and Reading Borough. The museum's collections include items from the Great Train Robbery of 1963, uniforms, equipment, medals, scenes of crime evidence, as well as items referring to Amelia Dyer, the infamous baby farmer. Visits to the museum are by appointment only, with a maximum group size of six. The museum is currently only open on Wednesdays. To make a booking, please email tvpmuseum at thamesvalley.police.uk. Now, as you may be aware, we're doing this massive walk to raise money for Suicide Prevention Bristol in memory of Sarah, a listener and a friend. If you would like to support this worthy cause, then head over to justgiving.com, look up Backtracker, and you should find our page. Forty-five years passed, and the mystery of Owen Parfit became a local legend. The story retold by the fire when conversation turned to the weird and supernatural. The locals believed that Owen had been carried off by the devil in the storm that raged during the initial search, taken specifically because of his dealings with the occult in Africa. Some gentlemen happened to hear the story and were interested in it, they sought out the old people in the town who had known the Parfits and questioned them as to what had happened. Some of the men in the village whose clothes had been made by Parfit as long as he had been able to work and who had helped in the search for him declared quite openly that Owen was... Neither a very good nor a very bad man but was said sometimes to have a very violent temper. No one really thought anything would happen to solve the mystery but in November 1813, Thomas Strode inherited a house that used to belong to his father and his great-uncle for nearly 50 years. It stood about 150 yards from the cottage in which Owen and his sister had lived. Thomas was digging in his front garden one day, when, about two feet down, he came across a human skull. 
Startled by this grim discovery, he dug further and soon unearthed a complete skeleton. After discovering the skeleton in his front garden, Thomas Strode's first thought was there was foul play involved. So he contacted the police and an inquest was soon convened. Thomas was the first to give evidence and he told how he found the remains. The skull was the first thing I found and I think it was lying face downwards. The whole skeleton seemed to have been thrown in very hastily as it did not lie at full length but in a kind of confused heap. At the time, there were still some people in the area who remembered the disappearance of Owen Parfit and had even been in the search party. Amongst them was Susanna Snooks, Owen's carer. The most notable witness was Jehoshaphat Stone, who said, I knew Owen Parfit well. He was a tailor and lived at Broad Cross. My clothes were made by him. Owen's sister lived with him with the purpose of taking care of him, as he was a cripple and she commonly used to put him in a chair at the door of the house while she made his bed. That one day, she had placed him out as usual and was making the bed, when she heard a noise and ran downstairs to discover the cause and found her brother was gone and the chair moved. The noteworthy point about Stone's statement that the sister, Mary, was induced to come downstairs by hearing a noise and that the chair was moved. But when re-questioned, Susanna distinctly remember Owen's sister saying that she had not heard a noise and the chair had not been moved. Susanna herself said, The chair, when I looked, was exactly as we had placed it. There was one witness that gave new evidence. Joanna Mills, aged about 75, said that she had known Owen well and was a distant relative, adding conclusively that Owen had not been in the army. But she did confirm that Owen, being rather wild in his youth, had gone off to America and Africa. The main and most important piece of new information was that the house attached to the land in which the skeleton was found had been at the time of Parfit's disappearance, occupied by a widow called Lockyer. The widow was described as not a great person by all accounts, but was allegedly quite intimate with Owen. Her house was only 150 yards away from his, so the idea that two people could have taken him there from his chair in less than 10 minutes is possible. It is thought that Owen, being in the habit of carrying his wealth in a bag around his waist, was murdered as part of a robbery. The belt was something that Lockyer would have known about. Another theory was that some people from Bristol may have killed him because he held some information over them and they wished him silenced and they called in the help of Lockyer. Either way, Lockyer had died long before the discovery of the bones and her neighbours never really knew anything about her as she was quite aloof and self-contained. As things turned out, a post-mortem on the bones showed them to be that of a young woman. Another mystery to add to the list. Although the locals had never believed the bones to be Owens and still clung to the notion that the devil had taken one of his own 
to hell. news, Mr Jonathan Connor's case for unlawful dismissal from his job at the Bristol keyboard factory was thrown out of court. It turns out he was fired for not putting in enough shifts. Hey, this is Russ. This is Kyle. This is Michelle. From the Infectious Groove Podcast. Join us every Monday for the most fun you can have with a music podcast. The Infectious Groove Podcast uses a positive and fun approach as we take time every week to share our jammy jams, then dig into a thought-provoking topic discussing all decades and genres of music. You can find the Infectious Groove Podcast on all major podcast platforms, or you can head to infectiousgroovepodcast.com to find us there and subscribe. We might have a controversial opinion here or there, but we always have fun with it. Oh, I'm sure I'll say something dumb. Subscribe to the Infectious Groove Podcast, part of the Odd Pods Media Network. Back in the day facts. Let's start off with the 2nd of October, 1836, when, after five years at sea, Charles Darwin returns to England aboard the HMS Beagle. On the 3rd of October, 1849, American author Edgar Allan Poe is found delirious in a gutter in Baltimore, Maryland, under mysterious circumstances. It's the last time he's seen in public before his death. On the 4th of October, 1941, the Maltese Falcon, directed by John Huston and based on the Dashiell Hammett 1929 novel of the same name, starring Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor, premieres in New York City. On the 5th of October, 1973, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the seventh studio album by Elton John, is released. And on the 6th of October, 1927, The Jazz Singer premiered on this day at the Warner Theatre in New York. Starring Al Johnson, it was the first feature film with synchronised speech, as well as music and sound effects. It revolutionised the motion picture industry and marked the end of the silent film era. Warner Brothers at the time were on the verge of bankruptcy in 1926 and in a last-ditch attempt at survival, the studio decided to risk everything by investing in the new Vitaphone sound system. It was this that made the jazz singer a box office success and it turned Warner Brothers from a shoestring operation into Hollywood's leading film factory. It has to be said that the movie contains barely two minutes worth of synchronised talking. The rest of the dialogue is presented through caption cards or intertitles, standard in silent movies of the era. I hope you enjoyed the tale of Owen Parfit, and I'd really like to thank today's stars of the show, for bringing the story to life and making me look good in the process. And today that includes Henry Arnold and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio and Carrie Ball and Sam Roberts from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol as well as Tony Allen.
Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Shared podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at Backtracker UK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other.